prosecution outlined how accounting practices fuck? did not What kind of likeness is that? They were great artists still being a museum. And fucking fodder for cartoonists now. To another fantastic dose of Gutter Boys. Gutter Boys is a small press comics podcast about the ins, the outs, the highs, and the very deep, endless lows of making comics. I'm your host, JB, not joined with my co host, Cam. He is uh, currently unavailable. We will not comment on what's going on, but uh, he won't be on the show for some time. Uh, as a result, this interview uh, with our very special guest on this episode, Caitlin McGurk who some of you probably know as the assistant professor at the Ohio State University Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum. But yeah, Caitlin uh, was nice enough to come on the show, talk about uh, her job, the recent CXC Cartoonist uh, Crossroads Columbus, Ohio uh, convention that took place last weekend. Yeah, but it was a great interview. But, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately for you, the listener, it is just with me. There is no Cam. Yeah, actually, can we take a moment of silence for Cam? All right, moment of silence over. I actually am here, bitches. No, so I'm actually not on this episode, and um, I do want to just kind of clear up. My life's been kind of crazy recently. I had a uh, sick dog, a friend pass away, and that took me from being able to go to Alex's wedding, so I missed a lot of you all there. But um, I did uh, miss this episode because someone had an electrical fire in my building. Nothing burned down, but they had to turn all the power off to repair it. So when we were supposed to record, I came home and uh, yeah, no power. So I couldn't record. So you have just JB, but I guarantee you it's very good. Um, I'm actually bummed that I missed this one because uh, I would love to talk to Caitlin and talk shop with them. So maybe they'll come back on the Patreon. She's definitely going to come back. She will uh, have a new book to promote in uh, 2024. Hell yeah. Oh, is she working on stuff? Yeah, she's working on a book. Cool. Uh, that'll be published by Fantagraphics. It's all in the interview. Okay, yeah, I got to listen. So, um, yeah. yeah, spoiler alert. Now, I do uh, the whole bit about, you know, me not being here. I've had people ask me about this. I was in the hospital, and uh, it was a serious scare, but it turned out to be nothing. I was actually <laughs> drawing, and I was just like, holy fuck, am I really going out drawing? This fucking blows. <laughs> I, was, uh, <laughs> I was drawing at my table, then all of a sudden, my right arm just got like the tingles and shit, and um, I started uh, seeing like blurred vision, and um, I went to go get my girlfriend, Alicia, and be like, I don't feel right, but in my head, I could hear, I could, you know, understand what I was trying to say, but when it came out, it was just like fucking gibberish. So I legit thought I was having a stroke. These are the symptoms of a stroke. Um, I went to the ER and they kept me at the hospital for almost two days. I had to get CAT scans, uh, MRI. It was an MRI. 
yeah, something like that, where they'd like inject my fucking veins with like colored liquid and check my arteries and all this shit. But uh, turns out I just have uh, what's called, and I might be mispronouncing this, but uh, acephalgic migraine, which is just a migraine without the headache and it's more neurological symptoms. But yeah, I'm not dying. So I had people DMing me that I didn't even talk to about it, asking if I was okay. So if you heard anything about me, I'm totally fine. I have a specialist appointment in February. They were like, if it's a big deal, we wouldn't put it six months out. So yeah, I'm totally chilling. It was scary. But um, yeah, I just, I guess I'm a bitch and have migraines. Um, so just to set the record straight, I'm alive, bitches. You have to deal with me some more. Yep, it's the comeback. Don't call it a comeback. Yeah. Oh, bad news though. Bad news. I am on uh, state-assisted uh, insurance right now, but the bad news is, is I still have a $4,800 payment to make off of these medical bills. So that said, uh, the cool thing is, is the hospital I went to, apparently I can apply for like uh, forgiveness and like assistance and they'll like just throw some of it out. It's some kind of program they have if you're under a certain income level. So fingers crossed I'll be able to get that, but I don't know what that process is going to be like. So I don't know if short run is in the cards for me because all my money's fucked now. But JB will be there, right? Yeah, I still plan on being there. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, don't feel bad for me or anything. I'm not asking for pity or anything. I'm just being transparent with you all. Little, little update. Yeah. Little life update. Oh, uh, you know, I'll probably have Cam's stuff, too, to sell. Yeah, so. and I'm going to be putting new stuff. I mean, I've been working on stuff, and uh, honestly, this might help me pay some of those bills. But, you know, fingers crossed, like, if I can get this shit squared away um, and get this, like, uh, bill forgiveness shit that they talk about they do here, then I might still be there. But as of right now, I'm planning on not being there just because I assume this is going to be, like, a whole fucking process, so. Yeah. So, if you're not a patron, think about joining. Yeah. Oh, speaking of, uh, next Patreon episode, we recorded it, but... Brian Bubbles fucked it up. We're going to re-record it tomorrow night. It was actually a good yeah. one. It was it was really good. So it I hope really we can good. I hope we can recapture the magic. Oh, it's hard. It's so hard. Yeah. Uh but Brian Blomerth and uh Brian Baines from Bubbles are going to be on the next Patreon. So uh we've two had Brian's. Yeah, the two Brian's. We've had some hits lately. We had our funny pages review and then uh next yeah. week we'll have that. So if you do want to subscribe patreon.com forward slash gutterboys or uh gutterboys.top. And uh, you can get those bonus episodes and check out two years worth of bonus episodes at this point now with uh, tons of past guests. Crazy. Yeah. So if you're bored uh, and you want to binge something, throw us some money. Yeah. And there's there's some uh, there's some quiet little little uh, some of those episodes go a little hard. Yeah. And And uh, both the Yoshida episodes are on there, too. That's right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, Friend of the show, Eric Bedore is on one episode where we barely talk about comics, but it's very funny. It's a very funny episode. And then we talked with uh, the guy uh, Fuzzfang. What's uh, Nick Farrell? Yeah, shout yeah, out to Nick. The guy who did uh, The Toys That Made Us on Netflix. So Yeah, fantastic editor, really good dude. Uh, so if you're a, a toy head, I guess it's uh, it's worth listening yeah. for that. And uh, we plan uh, on doing more, uh, I guess, guest interviews and more shit like that. So uh, yeah, kick us some money and get some content while you're at it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So yeah, we have some shout outs, some much delayed owed shout outs. So we did post all of our shout outs, but we're only going to do half of them on this episode and the other half on the next episode. If you want to send us stuff, uh, DM us at gutterboyspod on Instagram or me personally on Instagram at, at camdelrosario. Um, I do know that a few of you have hit me up. To be honest, um, I'm, I've got those messages and I will be responding to them. I've just been putting them off because uh, it's been a little hectic here, but everything seems to be kind of chilling out. So I will be uh, responding to you all so you can get your books to us and uh, we look forward to reading those. 
All right. So, yeah, first on the list here, we have uh, Curse of Brick from David Craig. Looks like this is a self-published comic. Yeah, it's uh, self-published. He's uh, from uh, Mursky's old crew, the Read More Comics crew. Ah, okay. Yeah, and uh, just more Brick Adventures, a lot of sight gags, uh, wordless comics. He did win a Doug Wright Award, I believe. I could be wrong on the award, but he won some kind of award for this comic. It's definitely worth checking out. I love it. I think it's one of the smartest comics going consistently, personally, just because it really, you know, when you do a wordless comic, it's either going to suck ass or it's going to be, you know, good or... And he just kind of goes above and beyond with it. And I really like... uh, the adventures that uh, Brick gets into. And to be honest, like it doesn't on the surface, it doesn't seem like anything that would be up my alley. You know, it's just some of the smartest comics going. That's all I can really say. Highest praise for uh, Dave Craig. And um, yeah, no, no, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, you know, if somebody handed me this book, I would not think of Cam immediately. Yeah. Well, and know? I mean, like it looks like it's aimed for young adults and it probably is, but it's definitely but it's clever. It's well done. Yes. It's, you know, it look, it looks like it's all drawn and colored analog yes it is yeah uh so you know shout out to a a real comics pro david craig and you can find him on instagram at dave comics c-o-m-i-x and definitely get a copy of this for real all righty uh next up we have a friend of the show patron blake a chamness sorry if i had mispronounced that dude i only read your name uh he sent in a couple issues of uh sentience and distortion uh, Sentience is a uh, sci-fi robot comic that's pretty fun, and Distortion is uh, slice of life uh, autobio stuff. So he's kind of running the gamut here. Dang, yeah, really cool dude. Uh, really interesting work. Uh, you could check him out online at b a chamness c h a m n e s s on Instagram. Yeah, shout out to Blake for being able to pull that off. I feel like uh, that's something I would like to see more of from you know uh, small press people. Is I don't know, trying your hand at, at different uh, genres. You don't have to do just one. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, I don't want to say easy to do, but it's easier for us to do it as cartoonists because, you know, it's all just pen and paper at the end of the day. So right, even right. if you try it for yourself, uh, you know, genre hopping's fun. And then uh, lastly, uh, just in time for the spookiest season of the year, we have Mozzarella Halloween from listener Andrew Pilkington. Yeah, uh, some more sick and twisted fucking comics. Uh, Andrew's been sending his stuff in over the years. Uh, we've talked about his work on here in the Mole book. Uh, Australian uh, lad, I believe, if, yeah. I'm, not, Shipping if I'm not mistaken. Shipping not cheap from yeah. Australia. <laughs> so, damn, <laughs> shout out shout out to our boy Andrew for really fucking throwing it down. Yeah, um, you can follow him online at Pilko Art, P-I-L-K-O-A-R-T. Uh, go ahead and uh, check out his work. He does have a new strip. Hey, check this out. He does have a new strip in Vacuum Decay. A lot of people say that uh, we wouldn't plug that book, but you know what? I've always said the talent in that book was all right. So uh, I hope you got paid and pick up the new issue of Vacuum Decay if you want to read more of Andrew's work. Spoiler alert, he did not get paid. (laughs) (laughs) We Uh, don't know that for sure. But if history history repeats itself, (laughs) you don't really get that paid over there. (laughs) Uh, uh, All right. Uh, We don't have any news. The interview that I did with Caitlin goes for well over an hour. So uh, we're going to just kind of end it here, I think. Yeah. Uh, If anything crazy happens... You know, in the next two-week period, I'm sure we'll cover it in the next news segment. But in the meantime, hey, sit back, relax, enjoy a wonderful interview with Caitlin McGurk. But before you do that, why don't you, uh... (laughs) 
<laughs> Just come back after why, the break. Why, why, why don't you uh, spend a little moment with, uh, with our very kind and loving sponsors here in this uh, little break of ours? And then when we come back, you can, you can enjoy uh, the interview. All yeah. right. How about that? Sound like a good deal? All right. Well, stay tuned. Uh, yeah. Commercial break time. Okay. <laughs> we'll be right back. Meow. Meow. Sid the Cat magazine is out now. If you've ever been to an amazing rock and roll show and thought, I wish I could experience this moment again, but in comic form, then Sid the Cat magazine is for you. Fiercely independent show promoter Sid the Cat have joined forces with comics journalist Andrew Greenstone to bring you an ongoing publication that documents the SoCal indie rock scene. This stunning 52-page full-color magazine features comics, articles, photos, and illustrations from a rotating cast of local illustrators and writers. It's a celebration of Sid's artists and venues and supports those keeping the bleeding edge of the indie music scene alive. Our first issue covers musical artists Big Thief, Illuminati Hotties, Mike Kroll, Fucked Up, Finn Lilly, Katie Kirby, Kate LeBon, Cursive, Christian Lee Hudson, No Win, and so many more. If you are a fan of comics, indie music, zines, rock reports, or community by the way of culture, order a copy now at SidTheCat.com forward slash Sid dash zine. Again, that's SidTheCat.com forward slash Sid dash zine. What do a pair of deadly assassins, a beefy pile of roided-up high school football players, a zombie outbreak, huge dragons, and a himbo barbarian have in common? You can find them all in the upcoming pages of the Santos Sisters. That's right. Ambar and Alana are back for more gripping adventures. Once again, Offset Press printed in full color on your favorite decadent newsprint. Prestigious publication. The Comics Journal love the first issue, calling it a highly entertaining comic. And Katie and Sally from the Thick Lines podcast called it a masterpiece and more than they deserve. And who are we to disagree? The Santos Sisters is available now. Don't miss out. Ask your favorite comic book retailer to add it to your pull list today or find it online at santosisters.com. Rust Belt Review is a quarterly comics lit magazine featuring serialized and short form comics from some of the most exciting cartoonists in the small press scene today. Volume 1 features work from Gutter alums, M.S. Harkness, Audra Stang, and Caleb Arecchio, along with work by Andrew Greenstone, Sean Knickerbocker, and Juan Jose Fernandez. You can order your copy of Rust Belt Review today by going to rustbeltreview.org. Enter in promo code GUTTER to receive two bucks off your order. Again, that website is rustbeltreview.org. Promo code GUTTER. Athenium Comic Art is an original art website for some of the best cartoonists in the business. They currently represent Remy Boydell, Marie Capel France, Nicole Gu, Jonathan Hill, Emma Hunsinger, Casey Nowak, Micah Song, and Tilly Walden. Athenium Comic Art gives fans the opportunity to own original piece of art from their favorite comics and support the artists that they love. In their short time in business, they've already shipped many iconic pages out to hardcore fans across the globe. Don't miss out on your chance to own a one-of-a-kind piece of history. Check out their website, AtheniumComicArt.com, and type in Gutter Gang at checkout to receive free shipping on your first order. Again, the website is AtheniumComicArt.com, and the code is Gutter Gang. Who loves underground comics? 
Everybody loves underground comics, and if you know people who don't love underground comics and only read the mainstream comics, immediately report them to your local comic book store and find them with copies of Clusterfox Comics. Clusterfox Comics is a black-and-white underground anthology comic zine featuring some of the best underground comics creators today. Creators like Cameron Zavala, Eric Jasek, Brian Judge, Miguel Aguilar, Adam Yeeter, Jason Cavelli, Umberto Tonella, Anna Peterson, Tony D. Pasquale, Drewby Hall, and so many more. Issues 1 through 4 are available now, with the fifth issue debuting in early 2023. Purchase your copies today at clusterfuxcomics.bigcartel.com. And that's comics with an X. Clusterfux Comics. Comics you can clusterfux with. Morning, Gary. Morning, Marianne. Need a menu? Nah, I'll just have the usual. You sure do love your eggs and coffee, Gary. Best way to start your morning, Marianne. Well, that and an issue of Town and County. What's that? Town and County is a new comic series written and drawn by cartoonist Alex Nall. He's that guy that wrote them books about teaching and that Mr. Rogers feller. Oh, he was such a nice man. The first issue is 36 pages of black and white comic stories with beautiful color covers and features six stories about folks in our little township here in Illinois, like Susie Barber, the house cleaner that uncovers her client's dirty laundry, if you know what I mean, and Stanley Pepper, that big feller that just lost his job and took to drinking every night at Bugs's Tavern. Well, ain't that something? Town & County is published by Ivy Terrace Press, headquartered in Chicago. Chicago? Who would want to live there? So dirty. Each issue comes with a copy of The Hometown Hero, our little town's newsletter, and it's only $8. $8? Where can I get it, Gary? You can order a copy of Town & County on the internet at storeenvy slash alexnallcomics. Oh. There's your breakfast, Gary. Thanks, Mary Ann. Ah, nothing like a cup of coffee and a good comic book. The Last Aviatrix is a post-nuclear adventure comic by independent Los Angeles-based cartoonist Buster Cagle. The story follows Summer, our last aviatrix, who pilots the sole surviving airplane, a nuclear-powered B-29, as she travels the ruined world finding ways to survive and help humanity while dealing with the eminent threat of the Atomborn, a rare breed of atomic wizards that want to see her out of the sky. Her mission becomes complicated when she accidentally picks up Henry, an Atomborn child who wields incredible power, and Clementine, a berserker on a quest for vengeance. Can our aviatrix survive this ruined and irradiated waste Land? Every issue can be read for free on BusterKegel.com slash comics. Paper copies can be ordered as well, but, you know, you can still read it for free. If you like Wizards or Warplanes, go check it out. Now, back to our program. Okay, now we're back from the break. Okay. 
uh, <laughs> uh, Cam is finally gone out of the picture, and I am uh, <laughs> I am now <laughs> I'm now uh, sitting here virtually with my guest for this evening, who is uh, the associate curator and assistant professor at the Ohio State University Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum. Also serves on the Council for Cartoon Crossroads Columbus, which uh, recently wrapped last weekend. And uh, you also serve as a juror for the CMA CCAD Columbus Comics Residency Program as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's changed a bit. But yes, all of those things. All right. Yeah, Caitlin McGurk, glad to have you on the show. What's up, Caitlin? Hi, thanks for having me. And I actually just got an awesome upgrade to my title, which I'll tell you now is... uh, Curator of Comics and Cartoon Art and Associate Professor. Oh, so, you're, so basically, damn. I got tenure yeah. and things changed. Awesome. So now uh, I've got this uh, fancy new title. Congrats. Thank that you. That's a big deal. Wait, so when did you get tenure? When did this happen? I got tenure last summer. Last summer. And, okay, um, so I'm a little behind yeah. the times. Okay. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. The title change just went through. So. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. well, we're going to talk a bit about what you do. Because uh, that's kind of an important thing to talk about, I'd imagine, if we're having you on the show. Great. But before we get in all that, let's quickly touch on CXC, which you know, as I mentioned, wrapped last weekend. How'd it go? How was the uh, the the whole uh, you know having the boys back? What was that like? Yeah, it was fantastic. I will say it was our best year yet, yeah. which was really a huge relief um, because you know this year I believe would be like year eight seven or eight for the festival mm-hmm. and this festival has been put through the ringer I mean shortly before the pandemic Tom Spurgeon died right. and Tom was you know one of the founders of the festival he was the executive director he was one of my best friends and looking at his ashes right now in my office and so we lost him then we lost the festival for two years right. and it you know went virtual and we really didn't know at all what 2020, 2022 was going to look like. Mm. And if anyone was going to even remember the show, if they were going to come out and it was, it blew us all away. It was the highest attendance we've ever had. Everyone I spoke to said they sold really well. And it wasn't like just lip service either. Mm. Like, I think sometimes people feel like they have to tell me like, yeah, it was a great show. And then I'm like, no, actually, how much money did you make? And um, people did well. And Every program that we had from Wednesday night on, because it's like a four and a half day festival, was almost at capacity. So, and 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 I will also say, not that anyone else sees this stuff, but from a behind the scenes standpoint, it also went more smoothly than it ever has before. Because we've had some major uh, fires in the past, including a time when a volunteer was driving Kate Beaton to her event and hit someone with their car on the way to the event. So like, you never know what might happen when you're organizing a festival. And we've had like just about everything go down. So this one was like, was perfect. Yeah. I'd imagine, you know, I mean, we've, we've had a couple of different people on who either help organize or who are, you know, spearheading running an entire show. And it is quite a, a, a process <laughs> to, to yeah. have to navigate and you know you're just spinning all these plates constantly for most of the year just to get the show going yep yep but it yeah it's, it i mean from you know as somebody who did not attend the event did not go to visit because i don't like columbus i don't like the people there uh, i don't like wow i don't like cartoonists i don't like comic wow. i figure what's the point uh, no, but based on what I saw on my feed, it looked like it was uh, a huge success. I mean, people were, like you said, just coming out, supporting the show, supporting the artists. Yeah, yeah. It was great. 
So, I mean, just a little bit of a background on the show. Um, here at the at the Cartoon Library, you know, we were founded back in the 70s and starting in the early 80s, our founding curator, Lucy Shelton Caswell, had started this triennial festival of cartoon art mm-hmm. that was like a pretty exclusive, I think, two or three day yeah. festival that was like sort of invitation only. It was limited to a certain amount of people. It was really fancy and cool, and um, and it was a lot of the funding for it came from uh, newspaper syndicates that no longer exist. But it was it was a big to do, and cartoonists would come here and be treated like celebrities, and it was a wonderful thing. Yeah. But after doing it um, every three years for a few decades, uh, Lucy pretty much had to stop doing the show when when you know our funding sources went away, and so CXC was sort of born out of that old show and it was re-envisioned as a yearly festival that would take place across Columbus and be much more accessible and, and free. So the concept behind it is to try to be like an American Angoulême, which is kind of hilarious because let's face it, Columbus, Ohio is no, you know, south of France. But it's the idea the comparison is really based on the fact that in Angoulême, the festival takes over the whole city. You know, there's all these different institutions that participate. And that very much is the case for CXC here, because for whatever reason, and it's it's why I'm here, there are a lot of different institutions across Columbus that really care about and celebrate comics and do exhibits around comics and other kinds of programs and residencies and things like that. And so the idea was to kind of like harness the power of all these different institutions in the city that care about this work and have everybody participate in comics related programming and hosting cartoonists, you know, the same week for each year. And so even that concept, (laughs) you know, is a lot to pull off because that just means a tremendous amount of people right. <laughs> trying to organize this thing and everyone has different goals and um, different yeah, funding sources and stuff like that. So I'm always impressed every year when I think we're never going to be able to pull this off and we somehow do. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> especially after a two year hiatus, like that is, that is wild. Yeah. I mean, we had uh, we had virtual festivals uh, for the past two years. So af- after Tom passed away, we had an interim executive director, Drizzy Drozd, mm-hmm. and he was wonderful, and he did a, a really amazing job on the on the virtual side. So so that was really great. But we just really, yeah, again, didn't know what this what this year would look like. We were able to honor Tom, and quite a few of us had a good cry together at the reception where we gave out the Tom Spurgeon Award for the first time, mm-hmm. which is an award that goes to uh, someone who works in the industry and has made a profound change and uh, you know effect on the world of comics, but is not a comics maker. I see. Okay. Interesting. So this year right. that went to... Um, to Frederick Schott, who mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, pretty much like the preeminent manga scholar and translator in the U.S. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just a lot of fun was had. I mean, uh, at the festival itself, like the expo part on Saturday and Sunday, we had uh, over 6,000 people come through, which is great. Yeah. So those are really good numbers for us. And as I said, everything, you know, at the Billy Ireland was at capacity. Basically, the the first two days of the show take place on the, you know, northern side of Columbus on OSU's campus. So the Billy Ireland and the Wexner Center for the Arts participate, as well as the Gateway Film Center. So programming's all up here from Wednesday through Friday. And then everything moves downtown and the downtown institutions like Columbus College of Art and Design, Columbus Metropolitan Library, Columbus Museum of Art, they all then host the weekend programming and the expo itself. So 
uh, it's a it's a it's a huge ordeal, and for people who actually come out and stay for the entire duration of it, those people are are heroes because it's not <laughs> yeah, it's not cheap, you know, to come and stay somewhere sure uh, yeah. for four or five nights. But we've got a lot of people who return every single year and stay for the entire thing and find it to be worth it. So that's great. And uh, you know, like the people that are staying for that entire time. Right. Is that yeah. mostly like academics, uh, cartoonists, uh, like wh- wh- just, you know, ballpark? What do you think? Yeah. So it's mostly cartoonists. And that is what we always wanted it to be. Okay. So, you know, there's a, there's a handful of cartoonists like Neil, uh, Neil Brideau and mm-hmm. Kurt Ankeny and stuff, Cara Bean, who come out every single year. They've been like some of our biggest supporters. And again, they stay for the duration of the show. To give you a little bit of a background of like the, some of the structure of, of how it's set up, mm-hmm. like our Wednesday night kickoff event is always something animation related at um, the Gateway Film Center, which is up here on campus. This year, it was a uh, animation scholar doing a screening of rubber hose animation. So like okay. all that awesome, like early Fleischer Brothers stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it was fantastic. And it was completely packed. And then the next two days, Thursday and Friday, are all at the Billy Ireland, um, except for some evening program at the Wexner Center. Mm-hmm. And the concept behind the Thursday and Friday programs are these like talk and teach sessions. And this is something that, you know, Spurgeon had kind of envisioned, which was after going to so many shows for so long, we've all talked to cartoonists and heard frustration sometimes about the fact that, you know, they're stuck behind an expo table all day and they don't get to actually participate in or learn from any of the programs, Mm -hmm. you know, and panels and workshops that are going on simultaneously at most traditional comic shows. And so the Thursday and Friday were really meant to sort of be like professional development days for cartoonists. So um, all day Thursday and all day Friday, we've got essentially workshops. We call them talk and teach programs uh, here at the Billy Ireland, where it could be someone talking about how to get foreign rights for your books and someone talking about, you know, someone doing a workshop on lettering. It's the, the idea of it is that it's like cartoonists and comics professionals teaching other cartoonists and comics professionals, which is, is just, I think, really fantastic and, and rare. Yeah. So, so those are limited to, you know, 50 to 60 people and, they, and every single one of them, you know, fills up. We had uh, Creota Wilberg here. Uh, for one of them this weekend, the, uh, this festival where she was teaching cartoonists like the best um, stretches. Like she's a she's a massage therapist, and so she was teaching like how how to you know take care of your body as a cartoonist sure, and stretches yeah. you can do at your desk and things like that. So the people who come to those, I think, are people who just are f- feel really dedicated to that and want to be able to learn more and immerse themselves more in in the community. So. They tend to be those first two days are actually like my favorite days of the show because it's a, like a little bit more low key right. and um and again it's like a Skillshare type thing not just the uh, fanfare of the expo part right and you're surrounded by cartoon professionals and cartoonists and comic people the entire time yeah yeah, yeah the whole time I mean we've got you know we have a really large community here which I think you know and um, I have an inkling yeah. Yeah, and with uh, the Columbus College of Art and Design that has a comics major, you know, there's even more, you know, interest from just students there. And part of the part of the programming for CXC this year was that we also combined forces with AAEC, which is the American Association of Editorial Cartoonists. Oh. So they held their annual festival uh, combined with CXC. Mm-hmm. So in addition to all the CXC folks, there were also like you know a hundred political cartoonists here, and so. 
you know, one of the one of the things that I think is really great about the festival, and not everyone seems to get this, and I'm just like, I don't know, expand your horizons a little. <laughs> like people think of, you know, just an indie comics show and, and indie comics people or mainstream comic shows and mainstream comics people. The concept from the start of Cartoon Crossroads Columbus was for it to be like all formats of yeah. this work. So you know, if you go to a panel, you can have a political cartoonist on it with a web comics artist, with a you know a American manga cartoonist or a you know comic strip creator, a graphic novelist. So it's it's everybody, which feels really nice, and also animation. Right, right. Which is um, it's weird because there is such a, a close knit relationship between early animation and early comics. Yeah, but it's not really something that's discussed that much outside of maybe certain academic circles. Yeah, definitely. I mean, most of the people who, or a lot of the guys who was who were working in their earliest comics pages, like McKay, then went on to become, you know, the fathers of of animation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of cartoonists kind of switched back and forth between those formats throughout their throughout their careers. And we just kind of want to highlight all of it and get everyone in the same place. Sure. I will say, like the only thing, not the only thing. The, the thing that we do the least of, I guess, would be mainstream comics. And that's not for lack of wanting to. Like, we just tend to only have, like, maybe two mainstream comic artist guests. Right. As opposed to tons of them, like most, you know, bigger conventions. Mm-hmm. And we really, uh, we really don't, we don't frown upon cosplay, but we don't encourage it. And <laughs> we, we, we curate the show, I think, fairly rigorously to make sure that it's not turning into, like, a merchandise show. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. So, Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a thin line to walk. I feel I, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of shows that try to reel that in, and then others that are just like we don't care, <laughs> whatever. Just like yeah, yeah, you got like a, a thirty foot tower of just prints. Sure, that's fine. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, no, not for us. Yeah, <laughs> I mean we're we're trying really hard to make sure that that remains the case. You yeah, know, and yeah. even like publishing houses will only take a few and specific ones. We don't want half the show to be you know giant giant corner lots of publishers we mostly want it to be independent creators right it's it's not it's not an industry expo it's it's supposed to be a show about the comics exactly and and the concept from the start has been celebrating creators and you know providing resources for creators there was one year I, i remember where any cartoonist who was coming, if they wanted to, could have um, free headshots taken with the professional photographers we had. Hmm. We had another time where we had a, a couple of lawyers who were available to meet with cartoonists to talk about, you know, tax questions and sure. things like that. <laughs> and uh, accountants, I mean, and um, estate planning. And so, you know, it can be that or it can be someone doing a workshop that's about how to use some particular, like, you know, Clip Studio or something. So it really runs the gamut. But I, I, Obviously, I'm biased, you know, but I feel like it's a very special yeah. show. It's very different than every other convention, and you should really come to it. One of these days, I will. I keep, I keep <laughs> saying that uh, MS keeps trying to get me to come. I, I you know, I've been uh, not big on tabling this year. Uh, that'll probably change next year. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I yeah, might not or just do come down for the fun of it. You know, there's places to stay. There's also, um, actually, there's a handful of cartoonists I know who are trying to get folks to to take over one of the hostels in Columbus, but during CXC week, okay. and we currently have it reserved, and it could fit like 20 cartoonists who would end up paying like. I don't know, $150 total to stay there for like five nights. So I think, uh, I don't know, there's options. Mm. 
Noted. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I uh, you know, I, I do like Columbus, you know, joke, joking aside, I do enjoy it there. Uh, everybody's very nice, obviously. Thanks. <laughs> I don't uh, even know where you are. <laughs> uh, well, I was in Chicago. Okay. Uh, I am not in Chicago now. I am, I am in uh, Ankeny, Iowa. So, Boy, that uh, sure sounds cool. <laughs> It Shitting is, on Columbus. It is uh, a <laughs> it is a suburb outside of Des Moines. It's like fifteen minutes from downtown. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. You know. Yeah. I mean, I never thought I'd end up in Columbus, Ohio. I'm not from here. I'm not from the Midwest, but it's where I ended up because of my job. You know, well, this was my uh, dream job. That's a very good segue, and, Caitlin. I think I think this is for someone who doesn't listen to podcasts. You sure know how to segue into things for a podcast. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> so, Caitlin, uh, yeah, you mentioned you're not from Columbus. Where the fuck are you from? I am from New York. So, oh, the I, greatest city in the world, baby. Yeah, I guess. So, I'm actually from Long Island, which is oh, outside of yes. you know outside of the city. But, um, but you know, don't let anyone fool you. Queens and Brooklyn are both physically on long island <laughs> it's just the, the island that they are on right but i'm from um i'm from yeah more of the suburbs on long island and mm. uh that's You're where like i grew where up Jerry seinfeld is from yes yes okay. exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm actually from the exact town where rosie o'donnell is from oh that's our claim to fame okay. rosie o'donnell and bob costas <laughs> very nice good company to keep <laughs> yeah and uh yeah i grew up on long island and you know lived in new york city for uh, a handful of years and then spent a little time in vermont at the center for cartoon studies before coming out here for this job going on 11 years ago yeah mm. yeah this winter will be 11 years in ohio Jeez. uh any regrets <laughs> not in the slightest none <laughs> truly. no it seems like you've you've made uh a nice little uh, niche for yourself there. <laughs> Cause I, I mean, who in their right mind is like, you know what? I'm going to be a, a cartoon librarian. That yeah. I don't know amazing. who, <laughs> and I'm yeah. talking to them apparently. I mean, um, yeah. what, what well, you'd you... be surprised. <laughs> I have, fo- I get, I get phone calls and emails. I actually had a call this morning with someone who was like, how do I get your job? What did yeah, you do? No. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so probably a line. A there's gotta be a line, right. Of people yeah. being like, how do I get this job? I want to be a cartoon librarian. Yeah, I mean, I kind of made it up, and um, that's it like ninety percent of academia, though. Yeah, yeah, to some degree. I mean, I just really, I, I did not know that this would work out the way that it has, and I feel uh, unbelievably fortunate for it. I mean, I was a comics fan and reader my entire life, and I, my undergrad degree is in English and creative writing. And uh, when I decided to go to school for library science, like I was make, I was already making my own comics and zines and tabling it like Mocha and SPX with my stuff. But I, uh, first of all, had had zero skill, but I also just uh, didn't really want that to be what I did. Like, I, I like drawing just fine, but it's not, I don't have a passion for cartooning. Mm. I realized I had a passion for like working with this kind of stuff. So. Well, okay. So you say working with it. So do you mean like. What do you mean by that? Do you mean like studying it? Uh, I, yeah, I want to so, explore that part. Yeah. Sure. So at that age, I wasn't sure what I meant. I just meant like, I, I don't want to make comics. I just want to somehow like work with cartoonists. I, maybe that mm. means I work in publishing. Maybe that means I, I don't know what, I, what I'll do. But basically, I decided to go and get my master's degree in library science. And yeah. I thought, okay, this will be cool because I, I love to write. I can do that kind of stuff that I love on the side, not have to do it to survive and have a you know, work in libraries. And and yeah. I decided I'm going to try to focus all of my 
assignments and internships and anything that I can while I'm in library school around comics and working with comics. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And it ended up becoming a specialty of mine that has, you know, obviously like shaped the rest of my life. So I realized, you know, again, that I didn't want to be be a cartoonist, but I wanted to work with this material. And so what I had thought was going to happen was I'll get a degree in library science and I'll work in a public library and maybe be be able to build like a nice little uh, graphic novel collection. You know, that would be and I would have been like I would have been good with that if that's how it panned out mm. and I, you know, pursued my passions on the side or whatever. Yeah. But instead of now now I work at the largest archive in the entire world for this material. So, I feel extremely lucky. And basically, while I was in library school, again, I like focused every assignment I had around comics. If we were if I was taking a class on preservation, I would focus it on the preservation of comic books. Um, I started freelance writing at that time for uh, Diamond Comics. Um, one of their magazines is called Bookshelf, and it's a publication. I don't even know if it's around anymore, but it was a publication for like librarians and educators. So I, I started writing for them, and then I just kind of like knocked on doors and called people and emailed people and tried to get any possible like volunteer or internship opportunity I could related to comics. So I volunteered at Columbia. Um, where Karen Green is. And at the time, there was just like a small mini comics collection there. And I offered to go in there on my weekends and catalog it for them just so I could work with this material. And then I got uh, an internship in Marvel Comics. And that really kind of changed everything for me. So I helped build the archive at Marvel on their publishing floor. I was there for quite a while and um, made some really great connections there. That was in New York, right? Yeah, yeah. in New York City. Yeah. And then um, after that, got a um, convinced uh, at the time, which was what was a brand new school, the Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction, Vermont, convinced them to help me come up, uh, to let me come up there and help them build their library. And so I went out there for a summer as an intern. I lived out of my car in New York City just so I could save up enough money to (laughs) intern at the fucking Center for Cartoon Studies. No shit. (laughs) I have some crazy stories. And... um, that's how much I wanted to do this. Damn, <laughs> so that is, that is wild. So, yeah, you were hungry for it. Yeah. Woo. And so I like, yeah, I spent a summer in Vermont at the Center for Cartoon Studies, had some of the best times of my life, moved back to New York, finished my degree and, you know, had a million other things happen, obviously, in the time in between. Yeah. But about a year later, the school, you know, was established enough and had enough money to hire their very first like degreed librarian and they called me. And so I moved to Vermont um, and was their head librarian for a while. So uh, that's where I met a lot of like my closest comics friends, um, people who were attending school there or were graduates from it, people like, you know, Joe Lambert and Chuck Forsman and stuff. And um, then after my time was winding down there because I was on a contract position, an opening came up here at the Billy Ireland and an opening comes up here like every 10 years. So it was right. a- incredible timing. And uh, I got the gig and I've been here ever since. There's a lot of details I'm leaving out because yeah. the story is very well, long. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, to be fair, you did, did just really just right past the whole living in a car thing. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. What, what's of interest to this uh, audience? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like we're here to talk of... about comics, not how bad I smelled for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a point of interest for some people. You never know. Uh, <laughs> we got a lot of weirdos listening to our podcast. Yeah, I won't yuck their yum, but uh, I smell much better now. Sorry. 
<laughs> All right. So yeah. So now you are fully tenured. Yeah. And uh, obviously the whole process of, of getting to that point involves a lot of writing, a lot of publishing, a lot of outreach, work in the community. Uh, any highlights in that process? Anything that stands out as like, wow, that was that made this whole process kind of worth it. Yeah, I mean, it is a really hard process. I I I don't know that I'd recommend it for a lot of people. I mean, I, I was I had started here in a different position, mm-hmm. and then it, I was offered like a faculty position here, and it was actually I don't know, it was a tough decision because mm-hmm. the idea of tenure is of course very tempting, but sure. the the tenure starting the tenure clock and going through that process is it's, it's really hard. It's yeah. very the publisher parish thing is serious yeah. and if you don't achieve tenure, you literally you lose your job. It's right? not that you just yeah. don't have tenure. You <laughs> yeah. have to go away. <laughs> so like I had bought a house and stuff and you know I didn't know like what was going to happen. So it's really yeah. intimidating it, and it's really um competitive and ever you know you get voted on your case you, essentially right. after your 6 year tenure clock is up all everything you've ever written and your you know 80 page CV gets analyzed by every single faculty member in your unit and they all vote on you they mm-hmm. discuss you and mm-hmm. vote on you and you get to find out if you keep your job or not so anyway so it, it's a very scary process but <laughs> I'm very glad I did it and I have tenure now. And the highlights for me would be um, uh, just, I guess, you know, so some of the articles I've written that I'm the most proud of. The one in particular that jumps to mind is an article I wrote for the Journal of Lesbian Studies mm-hmm. about um, the early lesbian characters in American newspaper comics dating back to 1904. Mm. So that that article has gotten a lot of traction. I've I've met a lot of interesting people through it, and you know, gotten plugged into you know different academic communities than you know far outside of just the the comics community. Sure, yeah. So I focused that article was focused on a, a super obscure comic strip from the turn of the century called uh, Lucy and Sophie Say Goodbye uh, that had two lesbian characters in it, and then another one that was created by our. Uh, our founder at my library, um, Milton Kniff, mm-hmm. a strip called Terry and the Pirates that had a lesbian character named Sanjak in it. And then a character from Brenda Starr by Dale Messick named Hank O'Hare, who is also a lesbian character. So getting to you know do archival research on that kind of stuff is extremely fun for me, um, even if it is stressful. And toward the tail end of the of my tenure clock, I got a book deal. And so I'm working on a book right now with Fanographics about a- another obscure cartoonist named Barbara Sherman, who was uh, one of the first women cartoonists to work for The New Yorker. So those have been some of the highlights for me. You know, uh, it, it's hard to say what a highlight is of the tenure track because it's like a scary thing. Sure. But those are, those were those are the, the yeah. two projects I'm probably most proud of. Okay. I mean, what is uh, what is the process like for building this book, for example, that you're that you're working on? Because in my my idiot brain, I'm just picturing you in a, in a poorly lit library, <laughs> you know, looking through microfilm. Yeah, I mean that's a lot of it. Luckily, not as much microfilm for this particular project as like physical material. But I've done. Uh, let me, let me say for anyone listening who's interested in this kind of stuff, I do not recommend 
writing a book, an entire book about an artist who is long dead, with whom there were zero interviews, with whom there are zero surviving relatives, um, and nothing written about this person. So it's been very challenging. But yeah, like where uh, do you even? Where do you I love her. What do you do? And with I'm that? nuts. So I mean, it started with an exhibit that I curated of her work a handful of years ago. Okay, and the book has kind of emerged from that. And so uh, a lot of the research that I've done for this has been done at the New York Public Library because the the main branch, you know, of the New York Public Library with by Bryant Park has the New Yorker archive. And so I've taken a, tr- a few trips out there and spent days and days just going through the archive of the New Yorker where you can look through all the letters between, you know, the art editors and the cartoonists and get a sense of what their personalities like and what they were getting paid and what they're, you know, just just the whole good lord. The whole breadth of like the experience of you know, being at the New Yorker in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah. So some of it for me was was that this particular artist also worked for Esquire. So I've gone I've gone through all the Esquire archives, which are at a university in Michigan. Last summer, I went to the town where she died and just kind of uh, like knocked on people's doors <laughs> to see if anybody knew her. And got, did a few really interesting interviews that way with people. I met a guy who mowed her lawn when he was like 10 years old. And this, uh, this would have been in like the 60s. And he was able to tell me some interesting anecdotes about her. Oh, I mean, I've, I've been researching this artist for like five years now. What the so. fuck, Caitlin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's cool, right? No, it's not cool. It's very uh, insane. <laughs> um, but the biggest thing that happened in this and yeah. and this is a a great story yeah. is that so so there when I said there's no surviving um relatives, I I meant um none who knew her. Okay. There are people who are who are, who are alive who are connected to her, mm-hmm. but she didn't herself have any kids. So I the see. biggest connection that I made through my research was this woman named Amanda, who is basically Barbara Sherman's half, great half niece. So, you know, she never met her. Barbara, I think, passed away when when Amanda was a kid and she didn't even know she she existed at that point. Mm -hmm. But Amanda lives out in Nevada. She's not she's not a scholar, but she had inherited some of Sherman's work in her family and just kind of started doing her own like sort of family an- ancestry research and that's hmm. how she and I found each other. So she had seen some blog posts I had written about Barbara Sherman and we started emailing and one of the things that came out of this was the discovery that not only was Barbara Sherman forgotten in the world of comics and cartoon art history, but her actual remains were forgotten. So we I'd never we'd never been able to track down a cemetery plot for her, a grave plot. And uh, what Amanda found out by calling around to funeral homes in New Jersey around the area that we knew she died was that her cremated remains were left unclaimed in a funeral home on the Jersey Shore since 1978. And so they still had them. So we, Amanda got the remains from this funeral home. Oh my God. And I did a GoFundMe and hundreds of cartoonists, like big name cartoonists and stuff, like donated to this GoFundMe. We put the whole story out there about this, you know, pioneer woman cartoonist and how she was forgotten. And, um, and we had a burial for her. So we buried her in California um, with her with her mother, found where her mother's uh, unmarked grave was, buried her there and put a grave marker on there. So 
my wow. life is very weird and like, the I mean, stuff that I've become involved in <laughs> like I don't know I'm, she was I'm, literally forgotten she was literally forgotten that and is, she was oh. she was essentially like the person who gave the New Yorker when the time it, it was founded its entire like visual feel yeah and she did over 600 cartoons for them you know a dozen covers she worked at, at Esquire magazine for like 30 years i mean she was a she was a big deal and um you know that's comics for you wow like she you know not only was she she was a woman cartoonist so she didn't get as much notoriety but there's just a lot of people who as you know don't care about this history or didn't for until fairly recently and so so many of these artists are just totally lost to obscurity so wow well i'm gonna have to pick up this book just to find out how the hell that happened Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited That's about it, crazy. and I'm very excited to be working with Fanographics for it. Yeah. So when when is this uh, when is this book supposed to be uh, released? It's going to come out in um, 2024. Okay. All right. So fall of 2024, and at that time, the exhibit I curated of her work is going to go back on tour too. So it'll be at a few different museums. Awesome. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. uh, that that's amazing. Congrats on the on the book deal. I'm, I'm excited hey. to check this out. Thank uh, you. Very depressing story. Yay! <laughs> but it's got a happy ending, which is okay. you know I don't know maybe all these years later people care and you know the community came together and anyway yeah <laughs> yeah well you know she she's uh, hopefully finally at at, at peace right exactly Just, wow that's that yeah, that yeah. is pretty crazy <laughs> uh, yeah I mean this whole process of you because you are effectively like the forward facing face of of the Billy Ireland right like you. You're the one yeah, there so, meeting these people, making these connections, making these, building these relationships. Yeah, I'm not the head curator. The head curator is Jenny Robb, but I my position here is kind of the public facing curator yes, position. Yes, yes. So I teach pretty much all the classes, give a lot of the tours, curate a lot of the exhibits. I do mm-hmm. you know all the social media, like all the public facing stuff. Um, whereas my my yeah, no, we do not have a TikTok. If someone wants to teach me how to like. I don't know, do it. And what would be cool? I'll make one. I don't care. We just want people to know about us. I have, I think our Instagram is decent. You know, there's gotta be at least one zoomer there. That's like, Oh yeah, I can do that. I know. We do have student employees here. And sometimes I do like student takeover, student takeovers of our Instagram Mm -hmm. and they make some pretty hilarious stuff. So there you go. Yeah. I've got to get on the TikTok thing. There's just no time. There's no time. Yeah. That's fair. But, um, but no, it's uh yeah. So my counterpart here, Wendy, is the sort of back facing curator. She processes collections, and then the head curator here is is Jenny Robb. Mm-hmm. So yeah, most of my stuff is outward, um, dealing with cartoon, uh, dealing with, <laughs> uh, working with cartoonists, <laughs> that you is, know, uh, and collectors and yes. stuff. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, dealing with them too. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you are like you said, public facing. You're the one that's like you know out there out and out making the deal shaking shaking the hands kissing the babies yeah yeah uh yeah sure that's totally how it is yes i get to i get to work really closely with cartoonists and it's the best because you know uh, not unlike cartooning the work of a librarian and archivist is also very solitary and quiet most of the time and so when i do get to have you know cartoonists here on tours or just go to visit people's studios and stuff it's the best because it's just 
I don't know. I think when people, I don't know if you felt this way when you got to visit, but um, when people actually see the archive at the Billy Ireland, let alone just the building from outside, they're like, oh, this is for comics? Like, this is amazing. <laughs> you know? I mean, to see to see this uh, material that has long been stigmatized and, and so disrespected for so long actually be treated so well and cared for in the way that it deserves to be, mm-hmm. I think is really profound. And so... I I love I just love getting to work with artists and getting them to bring getting to bring them here especially. Yeah, I would I would say uh you you've probably gotten this response too obviously but like in, anybody that's even remotely involved in comics or cartoons or whatever and they come to this place and they see it for the first time. It is definitely something that takes you aback. It's yeah. like what the, the, the even the idea that something like this would exist yeah. let alone in in somewhere like Columbus, Ohio. Uh yeah. it is very jarring. And, you know, that's, you know, one of the things that I, I love about the Billy Ireland and, and, you know, what you do is that as much as we like to joke on the show about, oh, you know, uh, comics, they're serious business. So we got to be very, very serious, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. mentality. What you do does that, but in like a genuine, like, pos- it's, it's a net positive, right, for the medium. Yeah. Because there is a certain level of legitimacy that comics just doesn't have anymore mm. that might have had like ooh, 80, 80 years ago, but has since been wiped away by mm. uh, a, a number of variables that I won't get into. But yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and it depends on what you mean by legitimacy, because like in some ways, I mean, comics are taken more seriously now than they ever have been by, by far. But cartoonists are making less money than they ever have been too. Yeah. So yeah. What do you, what do you mean when, when you say, say legitimacy? When I say legitimacy, I just mean how, what, what is our day-to-day relationship with this thing? Right. With comics. Yeah, sure. Okay. I feel like today it is seen as this sort of a, a very, very much like a, a niche thing, right? It's this, mm. it's this fetishized thing that has been mutated and transformed into this marketing behemoth for movies and TV. When in reality, comics was something that we had a daily relationship with, whether it be in the papers or on newsstands uh, or, you know, just comic racks. It was something that we had a very more intimate knowledge of and understanding of. And it wasn't seen as this, you know, on the edge of, of culture type of thing. That's very true. And it's and it and it just depends on the format and you know that's an interesting way of thinking about it because yes, like comics were far more ubiquitous before and part of our daily lives, but also not nearly as appreciated and respected truly because mm. and, until like the graphic novel was really popularized and then comics could be included in libraries and sure. then of course in the world i work in comics could be included in classes i mean more often than not i work with undergrad students who read a graphic novel as part of their coursework in high school and like that was definitely not the case when i was in high school and it certainly wasn't you know the case for anyone before the advent of graphic novels that comics were taken seriously in that way so like they're far more legit now in that sense but yeah less of a less of a part of our daily life but is that even true i don't know because like the people love web comics and not even web they comics do. that web- they necessarily follow but like these memes that are yeah. basically comics you we, know you know we've talked about how uh web comics have fundamentally replaced the 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 daily strip in yeah. terms of like 
how we consume that particular type of media. Yeah, yeah. Because there are definitely like, you know, people that do webtoons are are very, very much invested in webcomics who have yeah. like no understanding of anything beyond that. Like they don't, they're not at all interested or have any knowledge about small press. They don't give, yep. they don't give a shit about the big two. It's just yeah. webcomics. So yes. that is interesting to me. Yeah. Going back to the graphic novel thing, do you think because that the, the terminology that was developed and kind of brought us to what we now understand as a as a graphic novel was that what pushed sort of the uh idea of taking the medium more seriously or was it were there any other variables involved yeah i think it was the graphic novel above all really i mean but there's like the things that led to the graphic novel you know so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i I think we in in the academic and library world i mm-hmm. guess think of the underground comics era as like the era when comics grew up and comics were finally being used to tell personal stories and political stories well not that they hadn't been political before but they were much more like nationalistic politically before but you know personal politics mm-hmm. things like that that started in the 1960s and 70s and then if it were not for that stuff the types of graphic novels that we have today wouldn't exist. And so I do think it's a big part of legitimacy. Like the graphic medicine movement is huge. Mm. And, you know, there are in pl- universities now that have narrative medicine programs. And a lot of it uh, is often focused on, you know, um, getting, you know, teaching pa- patients how to tell their stories through visual arts and comics in particular. So I really, I I think that graphic novels are what did it above all, because it was a little bit more, I don't know, you know, it seemed just a little bit more physically substantial to people and uh, intellectually substantial to people that it, because it's because it's a novel and it's, yeah. you know, a longer story. And again, like you really, it's hard to understate how important it is that this physical format meant you could sell it in regular bookstores and sell it in, and put it in libraries. Mm-hmm. Like there's really, there's no, there's no like overstating how important that was because comic book shops were the only places that had comic books before. When graphic novels were invented, now regular bookstores can have this stuff and it's integrated more with, you know, the rest of mainstream um, publications. And again, the same with libraries. You couldn't go to a library and check out a comic book, but you could now go to a library and check out a graphic novel. So like for those reasons, it just really, it definitely like permeated this other more sophisticated world of of reading so i bought my comics uh, like anything that wasn't a back issue Mm -hmm. i bought from 7-eleven nice oh i'm so glad your 7-eleven had like spinner racks that yeah and uh this is something that i've talked with you know there's like a certain demographic of people that have been comic readers like if you were born at this date onward then you understand this it's like we had access to comics in a way that we just don't see anymore Yep. Where you yep. could go to a brick and mortar store, a a uh, corner store like well, um, Seven uh, Eleven, uh, yep. chain stores like that, they would just have racks full of comics, and so yeah. you know, kids like me who are not really, I guess, acclimated to the 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 quote unquote comic shop culture, yeah, which at that age just I didn't understand it. I didn't want to understand it. It seemed very bizarre. And uh, how do I how do I put this? White, like, super, yes, white. super white, um, <laughs> just real sketchy. I, I couldn't put my yeah. finger on it at the time, but there was something very, very unsettling. About oh, it. totally. Uh, yeah. so the fact that you could go in and 
at the same place you buy Slim Jim <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, a Slurpee, you could also buy, uh, you know, the, the big the next issue of X-Men or whatever. Yeah, which was, you know, a, a holdover from just being able to buy them at newsstands. Right. And so, you know, sadly, there's just very little of that anymore. And I think like you, I am also someone who felt pretty uncomfortable in comic book shops. I would only I only started reading comic books when I was a kid because I was going to those shops with my older brother who mm. like felt totally comfortable there, you sure, know? Sure. And I was just kind of tagging along and copying him and stuff. And and that's why I think, you know, moving the format into regular bookstores and things like that made it a lot more accessible to people who, especially women, who were not comfortable going into comic mm. book shops and being stared down or questioned or, sure. yeah, you know, yeah. whatever. This is a, a question that I've had. Okay, so with graphic novels, is there anything that predates the collected trade that was written, drawn, published with the intent of being this long form thing that you consume in one sitting yes rather so, than you know collected issues in one book yeah there's a huge history of um wordless books mm -hmm. and other like long form uh publications that would really be the pre precursors to comics i mean to graphic novels you know people think of people think will eisner like invented graphic novels and he popularized it mm -hmm. by far i mean and no no shade on will eisner my gosh but he absolutely popularized it and if it were not for him i don't think it would have become taken off in the format that it has yeah. but there's a really long running long long history of um long form graphic books that tend to specifically be wordless books mm -hmm. So I curated an exhibit a couple of years ago on wordless books by artists like uh, Franz Masriel and Lynn Ward. And a lot of these were um, European artists. But then in the like 1920s, 30s into the 50s in the US, there were more of them who were largely working in like woodblock prints mm -hmm. and creating these long form, you know, wordless graphic stories that are really like the precursors to graphic novels. And one of the cool things about them is that it was a really like, I don't know, egalitarian format. And a lot of the stories were anti-capitalist stories. They were stories about like labor movements and stuff. And the point of them being wordless was so that they could be disseminated to and consumed by people who uh, were illiterate or pe people who, you know, came from different cultures. And so, like, those are the real, like, you know, early graphic novels. Okay. There's even, like, Milt Gross, who's, like, better known as a comic strip artist for, like, uh, Nietzsche Baby and um, Count Screwloose. He was, like, kind of a big slapstick comic strip artist in, like, mid-century. But he also had, like, what is definitely a graphic novel called He Done Her Wrong hmm. that came out in, I think, like, the 1930s. And it okay. is it is absolutely a graphic novel, so... Um, how so was, yeah, there's lots. How was that like disseminated and, and published? Like it would have that would have been sold at bookstores. Okay, yeah, gotcha. just regular bookstores. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, yeah. obviously, the the Billy Ireland, like you said, has the largest collection in the world for uh, comics, cartoons, etc. And you you guys have quite a bit in terms of stuff from uh, Europe. Uh, is there anything? that you guys touched on in terms of like, cause I know I'm getting a little all over the place here. I know <laughs> <laughs> with like, for example, in, in Korea, mm -hmm. I guess the development of contemporary comics was kind of stilted a bit uh, during the eighties due mm. to uh, very, very strict censorship guidelines. Uh, yeah. Not that far removed from what uh, the U S went 
through after after the uh like the uh, comics code is already yes yes and everything preceding that basically it's very similar to how things played out there and as a result it seems like it's only until recently that now there is a trickling out of of uh you know locally made comics from korea Mm. that are being made and obviously japan and their history you know, manga being this huge behemoth in terms of stuff that we consume now here in the U.S., for example, like uh, it, it, yeah. manga is all over the place now. Um, is there anything in your collection? Or, well, I say your collection. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the Billy Ireland's collection uh, that touches on that stuff and any research that you guys are involved with, because that is sort of my blind spot in terms of like contemporary uh, comics. What's is going it manga? on? Well, not just manga, but uh just also uh, korea's comic i guess yeah microcosm and what's going on there i mean so i'll say that our focus really is american comics and cartoon art like that from day one is was in our you know mission statement that that's what we were going to collect mm-hmm. but then starting in the 80s because we, we were founded in 1977 right and then starting in the mid 80s there was a japanese studies librarian who started here at osu who started collecting manga before it was even being imported to the us or translated into english mm-hmm. and she grew this collection that has now come become part of the billy ireland collection that is the largest collection of manga outside of japan and so we have that here um so next to our american you know english language work there's then our massive manga collection and then next to that you know the smaller from that would be um our bande sine collection Mm -hmm. and then things like manhwa is that how you say it and and yeah uh and comics from from other countries we have way smaller amounts of so i don't know that we're capturing any contemporary korean comics um it's not something that we have anyone here who's like actively soliciting or or purchasing Mm -hmm. because of the subject specialty you know required and not knowing where to look so that's the thing it's like the the couple of curators here we all sort of have different subject specialty areas within comics Mm -hmm. And we do tend to rely largely on donations from people, but that's something that we should have. And, you know, now I'm going to look into this because I didn't know that the, that there there was an, a sudden influx of or outflux of material from, from Korea. That's really exciting. From what my reading is of the situation, it seems like it's a, a pretty slow trickle. Okay. And a lot of it is obviously heavily influenced by manga because it is, you know, the closest thing they have access to there. Yeah. And it's propagated so largely across the world now. So yeah, I mean, but it, yeah, the, the, I I'm trying to think of the article. I you know I do zero prep when I when I do these interviews. If you can tell, oh cool, um, yeah, it's pretty great, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, actually, I did do some prep for you. To be fair, to, to to be fair to myself, you looked up my name. I yeah, looked up your you. name. Uh, I saw that you are a person. Uh, you do, in fact, reside in Columbus. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, there was a really, really interesting article sort of about the history of comics in Korea and how there was this huge explosion up to the 80s when the censorship crackdown took place. And then it basically took it back years, decades Yeah. as a result of that. So now they're only now recently kind of coming back from that. So. I don't know. Just something I figured I would bring up because it's something that I know very little about, but wish I knew more about, and something I thought you'd probably be interested in. 
Yeah, I should know. It, I really should know more about it. And I always feel very um, ignorant when I, wow. especially when cancel. I'm working with like Caitlin. young, I'm, well, yes, cancel me, <laughs> please cancel me. <laughs> I'm ready. I'll get you a shirt no, no. that says, please cancel me. That's, that should be your next shirt. Those are, that would be cool. Wait, maybe it. like an Can Ulu Like a logo? long sleeve tee. Yeah. Okay. So, something on it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so I, um. I, I, you know, work with a lot of students and they know everything about manga and I know nothing about manga. I did not. I'm, I'm someone who like didn't grow up reading manga and, and anime. I mean, I think I'm slightly too old for that to have been like a huge, huge part of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. But so I guess some people, some friends of mine were maybe watching like, or maybe watching Evangelion You were too busy hanging out in the Empire State Building eats, eating pizza like a real yeah. New Yorker. Yeah. I just like, I, I miss the... Yeah, I, I I missed the the huge surge of that, and I'm learning all the time about it. Uh, it just is such a massive part of the world of comics that I sometimes don't even know where to start. I mean, this is this is kind of cool. Like, I'm I'm actually going to be going to Japan for the very first time in like two months with a bunch of cartoonists. Yes, I heard about this. I think I yeah. told me about this. Yeah, and I'm going to learn all about manga and anime because it's it's with the Columbus College of Art and Design they're doing a, a field trip for their their students in the narrative practice major and the, and their animation major and so there's about 50 of us going i was invited as a chaperone and we're specifically going to manga museums and studios and anime museums and studios and then some other cultural stuff but it's a uh, it's just a bunch of comics folks going and we ex- it, we opened it up to anyone who wanted to join so like eric reynolds from fanographics and his whole family are coming with us and <laughs> so it's it, we're going to all be spending christmas together in japan with a bunch of wow. comics people wow. but i feel a little like again just kind of ignorant going into it because i know so little about it but i'm excited to i'm excited to learn more it was just you know there's only so much that any single comics librarian can well, you know, to your credit, you did literally like rediscover <laughs> a bunch of people that yeah, were forgotten. Yeah, I tried to focus there. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. Everyone, I mean, there's enough, you know what, there's enough fans of manga out there. Manga's not That's hurting true. without my Yeah, that is true. <laughs> now I'm creating this guy in my mind, like a Long Island mangaka guy. Uh-huh. I, want, yeah. I want to meet that guy now. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So I feel like I've taken up way too much of your time. So we're going to go right into questions here. Okay. Oh, there's questions? questions. Yes, of course. We always have listener questions. Cool. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, actually, real quick, I do know you got to meet who was it? George Gately? Was it George Gately? George Gately is long dead. I met uh, Peter Gallagher. Peter Gallagher. Now, who, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Oh my God! Best guy ever. Really. Can I talk about that? Do you have a minute? Oh, please, please. <laughs> so I know he, you were super excited about it. I was very excited about it, and everyone should be excited to hear about it if they read it. I'm excited um, about it and also excited for you simultaneously. Thank you. So, yeah. So, wow. he, so I, like everyone else, I've been following Heathcliff and very confused and amazed and unsure yeah. of what the deal is. Yeah. You know, because it got real weird over the past couple of years. And basically, you know, Heathcliff was started by George Gately and John Gallagher, who were brothers. It was taken over it back in 1998 by Peter Gallagher. And he's been drawing it ever since then, but just drawing it as, you know, regular Heathcliff comics. And then like in the past two years, he just decided to make it extremely weird. I think, you know, essentially what happened was his, you know, his uncles 
passed away. Yeah. And he had he had always had a kind of a different sense of humor than than them. And he would sort of pepper in over the years some like weird absurdist humor, but then just like went full bore uh, more recently. And mm. so if anyone who's listening looks at Heathcliff. It's it's mostly like non sequiturs and just very bizarre new characters like the trash ape and stuff. <laughs> and uh, everything's about ham and bubblegum. Wait, wait, wait. Trash yeah. ape? Yeah. Oh, you haven't looked at it? You have to look at it. It's I'm, incredible. Look, I My understanding of Keith, Heathcliff is so out of date. Oh, it's it's a is a whole new Heathcliff, okay. my friend. This All is right. not your this is not your <laughs> mama's Heathcliff. <Right. laughs> like guitar it's really, solo. <laughs> it's <laughs> very weird. Okay, it's, he's like, and in talking with him, I found out he's like a huge Steve Martin fan. He loves like abs- he loves absurdist humor, as yeah. do I. And so it's just like it's a real sweet spot for me. But mm. so he's been very. Um, you know, people don't really know him. He's not a public figure. He's just doing Heathcliff, this legacy strip. And people are like, this is a weird thing. There's one one interview with him that was on Soul Rad a couple of years ago. But we decided to, or I should say I decided to, like that he should be our guest at the Billy Ireland for this year for CXC. Because people are kind of, there's been this like new like cult interest in it Yeah. ever since he made it weird and so we invited oh. him out and i was honestly really not sure what to expect i thought like either this guy like maybe he, he's so <laughs> fucking weird and awkward and this isn't like he, he's gonna make as little of sense as a person as the, the strip does but he was totally amazing and he's totally like in on the joke okay and he loves how confused people are by it <laughs> he's like hype hyper intelligent okay. fun funny guy so it wasn't and so, like meeting gallagher yeah. What was that? It, said it wasn't like meeting Gallagher. It was like a, a pretty well-adjusted guy. Yes, was, a better Gallagher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. A well-adjusted Gallagher yeah. who, again, is like in on the joke. Like he was telling, he was telling, yeah, all of his panels and stuff were completely packed, and everyone was people were excited to meet him. And he was talking about how people try to like analyze the comic, like what does this mean, and you know, is this a reference to such and such? And he's like, I just like drawing ham helmets. I think it's funny. <laughs> like that's it. So he really. Enjoys the fact that people have like read so much into these like very dumb jokes. Uh, (laughs) That rocks so much. I just like meat helmets. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay, all right, all right. Now that tangent's over, let's get the questions. (laughs) No, no. I'm I'm glad we got to touch on that because that was something in my notes. I was like, we got to talk about that. Okay. (laughs) All right. First question is from uh, Audra Stang. Uh, what's up, Audra? Shout out to Audra. Uh, Audra asked. I love her. Uh, not sure how to phrase this as a question, but would love to hear her talk about researching Lucy and Sophie say goodbye and mm. the mystery surrounding who drew it. So we did touch on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting story. Was there anything that you wanted to add to that, though, that maybe we did not touch on or discuss? Yeah, I mean, I'll just say, again, I'll plug the article. It's in Journal of Lesbian Studies. You can find it for free online if you Google um, my name and lesbian studies. <laughs> you should do that. And uh, so, yes, as as Audra alludes to, this this comic ran for a super short period of time in, I'm trying to remember, it was like 1903 or 1904, in the, done by an anonymous artist. It was in the newspaper. Okay. And it was it was it ran for only like maybe 30 or 40 times on a Sunday. Okay. It's very um surrealist looking. It looks kind of like, you know, 
even though it was it was coming out at the same time as McKay's as Windsor McKay's stuff, and ha- sometimes it has a little bit of that sort of vibe where he like breaks the panel structure and does some interesting. The the, the creator again, mm. it was anonymous, right. breaks the panel structure and does some interesting things. But the whole conceit of the com- of the comic was every single Sunday, these two characters, Lucy and Sophie, have to say goodbye to each other, and that is the whole concept of of the strip. But in saying goodbye to each other, they're embracing each other. They're like heavily making out. They're yeah. like talking about how much they're going to miss each other. It's super strange. And a lot of turn of the century comics were very were very strange, but this one's really um, very yeah. unique, beautifully drawn, and again was unsigned. So huh. um, it was never known who did this. You know, I'm not the first person to to have found this comic. It appeared in uh, one of the Peter Mareska, um Sunday Press books about like obscure early comics but i did attempt to identify the creator and uh, you know i can't say definitively this is absolutely who the person is but after doing a good amount of research i'm pretty confident that i discovered the author and so in order to do that i basically did like side by side comparisons of it with a couple of other comic strips by this person you know looked at who was working in the area at the time and once i started digging into this particular artist's like personal life it became more and more evident to me that that was probably who it was so Damn. anyway that's the story there and um yeah yeah, you're That's like a, you're like a CSI investigator. Look at you go. Thanks. Yeah, for about things that no one cares about. <laughs> Except for Audra. Love you, girl. <laughs> uh, uh, next question off of Twitter. Uh, this friend of the show, Lucas. I still to this day cannot pronounce his Polish last name. I am sorry, Lucas. Uh, he asked, how does financing of such institutions look like? For example, do they have a solid budget for buying books or donations are crucial. And what is their opinion about comics closed in plastic coffins? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So I think, yeah, the first part was about our, you know, our funding, right? Yes, for yes. buying stuff specifically. I think it's just about how do you finance such an institution to begin with? <sighs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a tough question. one. <laughs> yeah. It's very hard. Yeah. Um, right. It's a constant struggle. So we are administratively part of the Ohio State University, which is a big university. Mm-hmm. And those of us who are curators here are librarians at OSU. So, you know, we're paid through central OSU. But funding that this actual place is done almost almost entirely by fundraising. So uh, one uh, to give you an example, you visited us in our beautiful new building. We've been in here just since 2013, but we've been on campus in various different locations since 1977. And over the years, you know, outgrow our space and have to move. Previous to being in this building, we were in like a 5,000 square feet basement space. And in 2013, we're able to expand into this 40,000 square foot space and add the museum and stuff. The cost of that move was I want to say thirteen million dollars. OSU gave us one million of that, and the rest we had to personally fundraise. Holy shit! And so what I mean when I say personally fundraise is I mean like you know my boss and her predecessor because a lot of this went on far before I was even here. Yeah. Uh, you know, making phone calls and visiting with people, and you know, luckily there are some really incredible uh, philanthropists out there who care a lot about comics, like people like Jeannie Schultz, Charles Schultz's widow, uh, gave us a really substantial donation. Um, Billy Ireland's family, and this is why we're named after him, gave us like $8 million. You know, places like the Hearst Foundation gave us a good chunk of money. And then a lot of it was just individual donations, you know, from $5 to $500 and, and more. 
and that's how we were able to do this. Uh, we still rely a lot on financial uh, donations. Um, there's quite a few artists who have set up endowments with us. So people like Milton Kniff, who founded our library back in the 70s, um, set up an endowment. And I'm not going to attempt to explain on this podcast how endowments work, but it's basically it money be that lost on keeps most. on coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> fine. So you know that that's that's all part of it. Sometimes there are very famous cartoonists who give us their collection and also give us a financial gift, and yeah. so that helps. But as far as like the actual purchasing stuff goes, uh, we have a really small acquisitions budget and we mostly use it to purchase items that are either needed for classes at OSU or needed for an exhibition we're doing or fill a gap in our collection. Like if we, you know, a few years ago, we realized like we don't have a single piece of original art by Steve Ditko. So we bought a few pieces. So we'll use it for stuff like that. But otherwise, we rely almost entirely on donations of collections and we get new things on in on a daily basis i mean sometimes it's you know an envelope with a few mini comics in it and other times it is literally a semi truck containing the marmaduke archive (laughs) things like that so um so that's how stuff comes here um and then the other part of it was how do we feel about slabbed comics as i assume what they meant Mm -hmm. um hate it not a fan (laughs) so i don't i think most people i would hope most people agree you're not a fan of of speculator markets come on no can you believe that can you believe that we're not a fan of a thing that you literally cannot access to read which is the whole point of it so Uh. No, it's very silly. I mean, people should do whatever they want, but like our whole deal here is providing access to this material. Yeah. And, you know, it's awesome and it's it's necessary for people on the, you know, open art market to buy this stuff from each other and buy original art from artists so that people can, you know, have a livelihood from that. Yeah. But we really like when stuff comes here because OSU is a public institution, which means that even the Billy Ireland, our archive is fully open to the public. So anyone can come here and request anything we have Mm -hmm. and look at it in the reading room, you know, whether it's original art or works from the 1600s or whatever. And like most places don't have that level of access and, you know, people's, you know, living room shelf where they've got this thing slabbed or framed like also certainly doesn't have that level of access for the for future generations so yeah that's my rant (laughs) well you know continue uh, (laughs) going back to the whole funding thing yeah is that is that just sort of the a byproduct of like most state universities kind of like putting a low priority on on the arts in general i think it's it's a it's a handful of things that's definitely that what you just said is a really big part of our story. So Milton Kniff, who founded our library again, mm-hmm. he was a huge cartoonist in his day for with Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon. Yeah. And he was an OSU graduate. And when he, in the 70s, being like the celebrity cartoonist he was, he decided to donate his life's work to OSU. The OSU libraries turned it down because they did not think comics were worth saving. Because, again, this stuff was not legit until recently. So even though he was a big deal, they were like, this isn't the kind of material that belongs in a library. But because of the connection to newspapers, because it was a newspaper comic, the journalism department accepted it. And so that's so we were actually founded as part of the journalism department. And that's where our founding curator, Lucy Caswell, was working. Hmm. And she fought tooth and nail to establish this place into what it is. Like, wow. always, she was given very little support from various, 
you know, some leaders more than others over the years at OSU. Right. But she really fought to build this herself and she's still around. And a lot of it is, yeah, this this combination of lack of arts funding and lack of lack of interest in, in comics. But now now we're cool. And now we're like, <laughs> now that comics are like a hot thing, the university actually pays way more attention to us than they used to. Interesting. You know? Yeah. Well, hey, shout out to Disney. Thank you for all your hard work. Yes. God bless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Next question uh, we have is from Sean Bay on Twitter. They ask, uh, is there hope? That's it. That's the question. Is there hope? Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing this applies to just comics in general. Wow. I mean, um, although you can, I mean, you can just stretch this out to just life if you want. You know, know. if it's not clear, I can just rant a lot. So I don't know where where we want to take this. (laughs) I'm just going to say, why don't I just keep it simple? Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. Okay. There's hope. All right. (laughs) Uh, Next question is from Instagram user uh, Gavis Goo. Uh, First time caller. How do you all know each other? I mean, comics, obviously, but how did you connect? Uh... I mean, you can. How do you and I know each other? I guess so. Yeah, that is the question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you and I know each other because you attended a retreat that MS Harkness organized, um, the Hawking Hills. What? What is it called? Hawking Hawking Hills Cartoonist Retreat. It's all made up. It's fine. A Hawking Hills Cartoonist Retreat, I think, is is one of the names. Okay. Cool. And um, for anyone who goes on that retreat, and I do believe she plans to continue to organize them. It usually culminates in a little uh, expo here in Columbus and a visit to the to the Billy Ireland. And anyone who attends it can request stuff. I don't remember. Did you request anything to come to come look at when you were here? I think I did. I don't remember what it was though. Yeah, I, I feel but like we had we had some fun. I feel like everyone was requesting some really good stuff anyway. Like there was a lot of overlap. Yes, definitely. Like. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how we met. There you go. Wow. Last question is from past guest, friend of the show, Caroline Cash. What's up, Caroline? Yeah. They ask, oh, hell yeah, Caitlin, <laughs> <laughs> what made you choose to devote your life to comics and follow up? What is a fun bit of comics gossip? Oh, my God. <laughs> um... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ay, ay, ay. Shout All out right. to Caroline, I, recent winner. We're going to keep I bringing this up. I adore Caroline. <laughs> what? I not, mean, yeah. I mean, it's hard. My my husband recently commented that Caroline has BDE, which I think we would all agree. Wait, <laughs> Definitely, what's, what's BDE? <laughs> Big dick energy, oh. bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's very. Yeah. She has some serious swagger, and I just yeah. think she's in, an incredible person, an incredible artist, and I'm very very fortunate to have met her also through MS Harkness's retreat. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's, um, that's right. But what was the question? Why do I do this? The question. Yeah, have yeah. What made you choose to devote your life to comics? And uh, what is a fun bit of comics gossip? What made me choose to devote my life to comics? So, man, there are so many stories I could tell you about why. And there's there some of them are really, I don't know, sad, or some of them are really interesting <laughs> and uplifting. But I'm I'm when I was in, I, I was always passionate about about this kind of work, and I'm someone who is particularly interested in uh, memory. And, you know, generally, and how memory works. And I wrote my undergraduate thesis on memory and consciousness in comics, Mm -hmm. because I felt that comics were the very best format that there was to portray a memory. So if you think about something that, you know, if you remember something from your childhood, yeah, 
generally what you remember is sort of like a still image, you know, it's like a slideshow. Like I've always felt like throughout my life, my brain was like taking pictures. Like they're mm. like still images of, of events that happened in my life. Yeah. And like, okay. I might not remember every detail from an entire conversation I had with my mom before she died, but I remember like the distillation of something, right. you know, that I took away from it. And that's essentially a comics panel, you know, like this, this huh. single image and, and boiled down bit of text. And there are some cartoonists who are particularly good at doing that. And so that was something that like really spoke to me early on and got me really interested in the format. But then through studying that, I found out how accessible cartoonists are and how accessible and welcoming the community is. Mm -hmm. So while I was an undergrad, I was also making my own comics and, and I was studying this stuff, but also you know, going to zines, zine fests and, and comic shows and making some of, you know, the greatest friends I've had in my life. I'm a big, like, you know, chosen family kind of person. And, you know, not to be all team comics or whatever, but I do think if you are like a misfit person who's maybe come from like some, some difficult backgrounds or doesn't have a traditional close-knit family, there are ways in which like the comics community and like the punk community really come together as a as a makeshift family. Yeah. So I felt that I just kind of wanted to do everything and anything that I could to be part of this and to have a role where I could actually be supporting and helping cartoonists and the people who are, you know, creating this work that is so meaningful and, and, and profound to me. And I feel really lucky that I've been able to and that I've met people like Carolyn and you and, you know, again, many of my, my closest friends and, and community members through it. So that's that's like part of why there's there's a, you know there's bigger stuff but i just love comics <laughs> <laughs> that's fair what well, what would you say is like your earliest memory of comics i was raised super catholic oh okay and uh, i was among the first i i, I was an altar wait, server wait, wait, do you know wait, what wait, that wait, is wait. you're a, a long islander that was super catholic yeah shocking right what what? So I was an alt. Do you know what an altar server yes, is? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. So I was, uh, I was an altar server. I think it was ninety three, ninety four. The first year that the Vatican allowed girls to be altar servers, it was a big, big deal. Mm. I was right there, and uh, and I was an altar server for a few years. And a lot of my memories of like zoning out in church, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, not not enjoying being there, but Just enjoying being at church. Yes. Yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed being part of the spectacle on yeah, stage sure. and like lighting the candles and then snuffing them out or whatever. Right. But and the other thing that really resonated with me and in, in the church that I grew up in were um, the stages of the cross. Mm -hmm. And if you're not from a religious background, you might not know what this is. But these are many churches display these, and in my church, they were displayed along the wall that you would line up in to receive communion. Right. And they're essentially individual panels that tell the story of Christ. And you, if you're in a long line to get communion, you read one and then you're waiting and then you read another one. Yeah. And it's like a little, it's like a little comic story. Yeah. And, and like that, I, I remember being really like fascinated by those. And that was like an early thing for me with like sequential artwork and and like storytelling with words and pictures but then beyond that my earliest interactions with comics were um marvel comics i was a huge like x-men fan and uh my brother actually was the bigger comics collector i mostly collected the 
cards and and would pretty much like i would love collecting the cards and like organizing them neatly in binders like basically cataloging when i was you know eight years old or whatever so yeah that's kind of that's kind of the early comic stuff for me until i again got into like more indie comics graphic novels and underground comics which happened when i was like 19 20 years old yeah yeah I love those trading cards too. Like those were very, <laughs> very important to me as a kid, uh, especially when they got, uh, I forget the name of the series, but they got these like hyper detailed, like oil painted portraits and, and images of certain heroes. Oh God. I can't even remember. I mean, it's been oh, so long man. since I collected that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. and, but yes, I, they I, were delightful. <laughs> yes. I would just stare at them. That was my yeah. thing. As a kid, I would just stare at those, those images. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, this is this is sick. This right. is so yeah. badass. <laughs> well, Caitlin, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, sacrificing some IQ points to talk to oh, me. Really appreciate this it. This is great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully... no, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I hope people come visit the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library Museum and apply for a table at Cartoon Crossroads Columbus next year. Or, at, or even if they don't come for a table, just come. Yeah. Just come and hang out. Yeah, it's highly, really fun just to be there as a visitor. Highly recommend at least one visit in your lifetime to the Billy yeah. Ireland, I think. If yes. you are even remotely interested in comics, you're doing yourself a disservice if you do not go and visit. That is, yes, that is I would agree. Bucket list item for everyone, I think. Kaylin, <laughs> where can people find you online? Is there anything you want to plug? Um, I would plug following the Cartoon Library on Instagram and Twitter at Cartoon Library. Don't follow me personally because <laughs> I have a private account, so I won't accept your request. Probably, <laughs> no, you can, but maybe I don't know. No, yeah, no, that's uh, yeah, that's but, that's smart. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, follow the Cartoon Library and follow CXC at Cartoon Crossroads Columbus on Instagram at CXC Festival on Twitter. And uh, leave me the hell alone. And <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm totally yes. kidding. I just, you know, there's some weirdos out there, you know, man. Nah, I just, I had to go private. <laughs> I had to go private. <laughs> oh, really? Was uh, you know what? We'll talk about that off air at some point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, what about your work? Where can people find your work? Because I know you mentioned you did comics. Oh yeah, I mean that stuff's long out of print, long uh, gone. Okay, um, okay. So but, uh, first select few now, huh? Okay. Yeah, but you can look for my fanographics book in 2024. Boom. Fall 2024. Fall of 2024. It's going to be called uh, Tell Me a Story Where the Bad Girl Wins, The Life and Art of Barbara Sherman. And if you Google me or look me up on uh, Google Scholar, you can find some of my research articles too. Amazing. Yeah. Caitlin, thank you. Uh, We'll have to have you back on when you do your promotional circuit. Uh, (laughs) Yes, that sounds great. (laughs) I hope that's the thing that happens. I'd imagine, right? That's normal. I don't know. Fucking book release, right? Like that's. Uh, You would think so, but come on, it's comics. Like Uh, you know, I mean, if I have a self-funded promotional circuit where I go to like two places, yeah. (laughs) Well, you have you have the upper hand because it's not a comic; it's a book about comics. Yeah, which is even less lucrative. (laughs) But yes, no, sure, there's going to be a book tour. International. (laughs) Well, either way, looking forward to it. Everybody. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Uh, Stay gutter. (laughs) Bye. Your trash is mine.